want to invite you to grab your Bible, either hard copy or on your phone. We're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 5. This will be our last night um, in the book of 1 Peter. We've been working through it really all through the spring. And so for those of you who have joined us right now, you're really hitting the very end, the very final message uh, of a teaching series where we've been working through this book called 1 Peter in the New Testament. And so I want to invite you to turn to 1 Peter 5. We're going to finish out the book tonight. Ton of ground to cover, so I want to jump right into the first verse. Uh, for those of you who don't have a Bible with you, the verses will be up here on the screen so you can track along with us. Here's how 1 Peter chapter 5 begins. It says, To the elders... Among you. Now, I'll get to the rest of this paragraph in just a minute, but I want to begin with the observation that what 1 Peter 5 is doing is it's really making a turn where, where at first it's talking to everyone, and now Peter is specifically talking to a group of individuals who are called elders. Now, when you see the word elders in the Bible, sometimes the word elders refers to people who are older than you. So when we talk about honoring or respecting your elders, we are talking about having honor or respect for people who are older than you. But in this case, the word elders does not mean those who are simply older than you. The Greek word here behind the word elder is the Greek word presbyteros. Presbyteros is the word for elder in the scriptures. It's actually, if you've ever been to or had a friend who's gone to a Presbyterian church, Presbyterian simply means ruled by elders. Elders in the New Testament, elders in the Bible, are meant to be the governing body of a church. Like in other words, the model for governance of a church in the Bible is not one man who says, I'm in charge of this church, follow me. But you'll notice what it says here. It says not to the elder among you, but to the elders. So when we look at the New Testament, what we see is a plurality of leadership, a plurality of elders, and those elders are meant to govern and guard and rule and manage the church. So it's so really specifically here at Calvary. Um, here at Calvary, there are nearly 100 people on staff. There are nearly 100 people on staff who have various roles and capacities and functions here at the church. And all of us on staff, or all of us in volunteer leadership, all of us here at Calvary, submit to a board, a group of elders. The elders at our church are 10 men who are given the task of guarding and guiding and governing our church. That is their responsibility, that is their call. They're not to act as representatives for us, but rather as representatives of God Almighty, who God has trusted with the leadership of this church right here at Calvary. That's how it works here at Calvary. That's what the New Testament assumes, these elders who govern and rule over the church. It says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, to the elders among you, it says, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who is also and will share in the glory to be revealed. Then he gives them a command. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted in you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, that's Jesus, when Jesus appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, you might say to yourself, Brian, that's wonderful, but I'm not an elder in a church. And so what does this scripture have to do with me? My answer is, it has everything to do with you. And you are in the perfect season of your life right now as a young adult, as a college student, to be thinking about the type of church leadership that you want to sit under for the rest of your life. You are in the perfect season of your life to consider this. So this is talking about elders, but I think it's really referring to any kind of church leadership. I believe these commands specifically apply to elders, but anyone who is a leader at a church, whether it be a volunteer leader or a small group leader or a pastor or a shepherd or director, 
This is the kind of leadership that is expected out of the people of God who are leading the church. And so here's what I want to show you tonight. I want to show you six things you should expect from church leadership. And this is true for you if you are here and you call Calvary home. If you call Calvary your church home, here are six things you should expect of me. Six things you should expect of Pastor Sarah and Pastor Brian. Six things you should expect of us here at Calvary. Uh, And then I know some of you go to other churches, you're part of other communities, or maybe at some point God will move you to a new place in life and you'll find a new church. Here are six things you should demand, expect from the leadership of whatever church you attend. Here's number one. Number one, church leaders should know what's going on in the lives of the flock. When when it says here, be shepherds of God's flock, God's flock watching over them, it means that church leaders should be like attuned to and aware of what's going on in the life of the actual people they lead. So if you ever find yourself under a shepherd who doesn't seem to have any idea what's going on in anyone's life, he just kind of sits back and kind of ignores the world and just kind of is into himself or herself and really ignores, that is not the kind of leader you want to expect to sit under. Number two, church leaders should love their calling and assignment. It says here in the text that not because they must, they don't serve because they must, but because they're willing. Church leaders should love what they get to do. They should never be the type of individual who seems begrudgingly doing the job, but they don't really want to do it. And here's what you might say. You might say, okay, I don't really know any pastors like that. Um, And maybe it's just because you haven't been around enough pastors. There are pastors like this. But maybe put, let me put it in a way you might understand. Um, I wonder if anyone at school, did you ever have a teacher who you kind of thought like years ago kind of started hating teaching? You, You ever have that? Like you were in school and you had a math teacher, but it was clear that the thing this individual hated more than anything else was teaching people math? Right? And so you just kind of looked at them and you're like, why are you a teacher when you seem to obviously hate being a teacher? And the actual answer for it is really kind of, kind of icky, right? It's like, because that's the thing they're paid to do. Because they're just trying to get their pension, trying to retire, whatever that thing is. Again, they're amazing teachers, but then you and I all had teachers who were like, why did you do, why do, you do this? You obviously hate doing this. And if you ever find yourself under a church leadership of people who obviously hate doing what they're doing, that is not godly biblical leadership. Number three, church leaders should not be lovers of money. So I want to be clear, according to the Bible, um, people who work at a church and serve the Lord and preach the gospel should be able to like eat and feed their families, okay? So the idea isn't like, well, if you work at a church, you should be poor and die, right? Like that is not what the scriptures call us to. And yet there is this deep burden that church leaders should not be lovers of money, Meaning church leaders should not be in it, it says, for dishonest gain, where they're getting rich or they're somehow making money or they're somehow after it for the money. Number four, church leaders should be comfortable with being called a servant. That's what church leaders are. If you ever look at a church leader and think that person isn't a servant, that person's not willing to serve, they're not qualified according to this text. Verse five, church leaders should not be bullies or abusive. Well, like, let me be really clear that there is a possibility in every church for leadership to become bullies. What does a bully mean? It means they don't listen. It means they push around. Abusive means they harm people, that they actually cause people physical or emotional, psychological pain. There's no place for that in church leadership. And number six, church leaders should be an example of following Jesus. They should be someone you can look to and go, that person is not perfect. I know they're not perfect, but they're showing me what it means to follow Jesus. Now, here's why I think this list is significant. I want you to look at this list right now, and I want you to think of how most people, maybe even you throughout your life, assess and evaluate church leaders. Do you see church leaders should be super dynamic, cool speakers up here anywhere? Do you see that church leaders should be hip and cool and relatable anywhere up here? 
Do you look anywhere up here and see that church leaders should be humorous and should be exactly like me and should dress cool and should be awesome? That's not at all what Peter is calling church leadership toward. I just want you to observe how often we go into a church and we assess and we evaluate leaders based on talent and not on character. And what matters, what matters for your spiritual health and future is not the talent of your church leaders. It is their character. It is their holiness. It is that they walk in the way that God has called them to walk. I want to plead with you tonight throughout the rest of your life. Whether you are at this church or some other church that God takes you to in the future, do not look for talent. Do not look for charisma. Do do not look for the thing that everyone else looks for, the outward things. Look for the inward things of character because that will ultimately cause you to flourish. Talent is awesome and charisma is amazing. You see an awesome worship band like ours? That's awesome, okay? But here's what I want you to know. Our worship band is evaluated by our leadership here, not based on their talent. They're all off the charts talented. They're evaluated based on their character. And the reason we pull people from stages here at Calvary is not because, well, you didn't hit that note or you didn't sing that very well. We pull people from the stage because of character, because that's what actually matters in church leadership. Listen, if I could summarize it this way, let me say this, that you should expect your church leaders to live in love like Jesus. You should expect it. You should expect that leaders like me and leaders like Pastor Brian or Pastor Sarah or Jacob or anyone else are living and loving like Jesus. But then let me be abundantly clear on the other side. You should expect us to live in love like Jesus. You should not expect your church leaders to be Jesus. Because if you start to put your hope and your trust and your faith in me, if you start to put it in any church leader, we will fail you. We will. Because we're not Jesus. And the great tragedy of our modern age is that we've elevated certain preachers and certain leaders and certain people up to this place where we have made them the God of our lives. And if you do that, you are setting yourself and your future up for disappointment, failure, anger, and heartbreak. Your leaders, your church leaders, wherever you go the rest of your life, should live in love like Jesus, but they will never be Jesus. It goes on this way in verse 5. It says, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. So, so in other words, what it's saying is young people, which is everyone here in this room, what you need to do is you need to submit yourself to your elders. Now, one of the things I love about the scriptures here is it doesn't say you should be submitted, right? It actually says you're supposed to submit yourself. See, the idea of submission in the scriptures is not the authority just kind of puts their foot down and puts their fist down on you, but rather you choose to come into submission to rightful authority over your life. And if you are the type of person who goes, no one gets to tell me what to do. No one has authority over my life. I'm calling my own shots. I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the captain of my own ship. No one ever tells me what to do. You can go ahead and believe that. You're just not walking in New Testament discipleship. You're not. And so here's what I want to point out here. It tells us that those of us who are younger, anyone in this room, we submit ourselves to elders. We submit ourselves to church leadership. Now, let me give you a distinction here. Submission to church leadership does not mean agreeing with everything leadership says. So I want to be clear here that submission to church leadership isn't like my favorite verse because it's like, well, Brian's right and you're wrong. Get over it, right? That's not how it goes. But like the point of Peter's text here is not to say that we're just supposed to agree with everything anyone on a stage at Calvary says. Rather, here's what I think submission to church leadership looks like. Submission to church leadership means willing to, being willing to be swayed, willing to be convinced, willing to be changed, having an open mind and a willingness to be guided and shepherded and led in a certain direction. 
Like the opposite of this would be the person who just kicks against everything and everyone, is never willing to be led, never willing to be swayed. Let me give you four specific ways this plays out in the life of a local church. Number one, I want you to be willing to be swayed in your theology. Willing to be swayed in your theology. Meaning, when you listen to a sermon, when you get into a small group, when you get into a Bible study at this church or any church, there should be a part of you that says, I might be wrong about something and I want to learn. And if you're the type of person who comes into every sermon and anytime a pastor says something you disagree with, you're just like, that's got to be wrong because he's wrong and I'm right and there's no way she's right. There's every reason I'm right. Like if you go into a sermon like that, you are not willing to be swayed. What do we want to be? It's not that every time I say something as I teach up here, I'm necessarily right. But what does the scripture call us toward? It's that as we sit under teaching, I want to be willing to be swayed. As I sit under the teaching of our senior pastor, Sean Thornton here, I want to be willing to be swayed, willing to be convinced in what I believe about who God is. Willing to be swayed in your theology. Listen, willing to be swayed in your discipleship. So so when a pastor gets up and says, hey, you should join a small group. You should serve somewhere. You should give somewhere. You should forgive someone when they call you to take next steps of faith. If your first reaction is just resistance, 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 that is not submitting yourself to your elders. But what is it? It's just being willing to be swayed, willing to be open to something, willing to be open to taking a next step because you've been called to do it. Number three, you want to be willing to be swayed in church methods. Can I just tell you, like we here at Calvary do things a certain way. We meet in this room, it's kind of dark, there's lights, it's kind of how we do it, like we just kind of have our way of doing it. And yet another church is going to meet outside or in an old cathedral in a different way, different style of church. And here's what I want you to know. Like according to the Bible, there's a million different ways you can do church right. But what we want to do is we want to just be willing to be swayed and led in a certain direction. And here's the problem. If for the rest of your life you keep looking for a church that's just like the one you grew up in, you will always be miserable because there is no church just like the one you grew up in other than the one you grew up in. That's it. That's all there is. If you grew up at Calvary and you love Calvary, but then you go off to college and you look for a church just like Calvary, you will never find it. So what do you want to do? You want to show up at a church and be willing to be swayed of, okay, this is how they do church. This is how they operate as a church. And I'm going to be led in that. And then finally, we want to be willing to be swayed by vision. And so here's what I believe. Every church has the same mission, and that is to make disciples, right? That's what Jesus told us to do. That's the mission, make disciples. And yet every church has a different vision of how that plays out in their community. And the great danger is that you will go to that church, and instead of buying into the vision that that church has, what you'll do is you'll just kind of say, no, this is how churches are supposed to operate, and you'll never be led. You'll never be swayed by church vision. So the question I have for you tonight is this, whether you call Calvary home or another church home is this, are you willing to let anyone lead you? Does anyone get to lead you? Does anyone get to persuade you? Does anyone get to draw you in a certain direction? Not because you chose to go there, but because they were shepherding you in that direction. Does anyone at our church have that voice in your life? Does anyone at your church have that voice in your life? Because here's what I know. The person who's not willing to let anyone in their church lead them needs to find a new church. You need to find a new one if you will not let anyone at your church lead you. And here's why. In verse 5, Peter goes on. He says, all of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. So all throughout the New Testament, there's this image of clothing yourself in these virtues, clothing yourself in humility. And the reason I think 
that, that the scriptures use this metaphor of clothing yourself. It's because the scriptures and the authors of scripture and ultimately the Holy Spirit himself understands something about you and understands something about me. And here's what the Holy Spirit understands about you, um, that you start most days thinking about your favorite subject. And you might not know what your favorite subject is. Maybe you think it's work, or maybe you think it's school, or your boyfriend, or your family, or or football, or or, or your favorite um, thing to do on the weekend. It's none of those things. You spend every day, starting every day, thinking about your favorite subject, and your favorite subject is you. It's you. Like, don't, don't you realize you wake up in the morning, you're like, how did I sleep last night? I slept good. I slept bad. What do I need to do? I need to use the bathroom. I need to brush my teeth. I need to take a shower. What am I going to wear today? What am I going to do today? Where am I going to go today? What's for breakfast today? How's the weather going to treat me today? Like, you spend all morning thinking about you. And if you haven't realized this yet, it's time to realize that your default setting every single morning of your life when you wake up is to think about you. And that's what's so beautiful about the scriptures here. What's so beautiful about the scriptures here is is it doesn't say be humble. It says clothe yourself with humility. And why does it give us the metaphor of clothing yourself? Because I don't know if you've realized this, but you have clothed yourself every single morning of your life. It's not like a one-time thing. It's not like 25 years ago you put on clothes and you were set for the rest of your life. It's like every single morning you have to wake up and put on clothes. And what's the metaphor here? It's that every single morning of your life, you wake up and your default setting is to think about you. Your wants, your needs, your desires, your day, your thing. And what the scriptures say is you need to wake up every morning and go, my default setting is to be all about me today. And instead, I'm going to clothe myself with humility and think about others. That is what the New Testament calls us toward. When it says you're called to clothe yourself, it's because it assumes you're thinking about you constantly. And then what does he go on to say in verse 5? He says this, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. This, this is a sentence that if you memorize it and live by it and think about it and truly integrate this into your life, it could change everything about your life. This is one of those sentences that said over and over and over again throughout the Bible because God wants you to get that this sentence is as true as the law of gravity. As true as the law of gravity. Like I've got this pen here, right? And in a moment, I'm going to drop this pen. And no one in this room is shocked or no, like, what's going to happen when he drops this pen, right? It goes straight to the ground. Like no one in this room thought maybe he'll drop the pen and it'll go straight up into the ceiling. No one here thinks I'm going to drop this pen and it's going to zoom out and stab you in the eye, right? No one here thinks that because the law of gravity is not something that is negotiated with. It's not something that's random. It doesn't work 99 out of 100 times. It works 100 out of 100 times that when I drop a pen to the ground, it will always, every single time, fall to the ground. That's the law of gravity. And let me tell you the law of humility. Every single time you walk in pride and arrogance, it says that God opposes you. And every single time you walk in humility, every single time you humble yourself, it says the God of the universe shows you favor. This is as true in your life as the law of gravity is. Let let me make it really specific. So show of hands here, I just want to ask, there's no lying here, we're in church, this is not a trick question. Who here, somewhere in the last week, has had something that has stressed them out, caused them anxiety, made them worry? Okay, look at you, you're human. Okay, so... In those moments where something very small, something very big, whatever that is that's stressing you out, there are two reactions basically that human beings have in those moments. The first reaction is, I will take care of it. I will do what I need to do. I will work at it. I will get it done. I will do everything that needs to be done to get this done. 
And here's what I want you to know. That in the moment that your first reaction to stress or anxiety in your life is, I will not turn to God and ask him for help. Rather, I will take care of it on my own because I've got this thing on my own. You are walking in pride and you have every reason to believe God opposes you. But then here's what I want you to know. Then that moment you are stressed and you are anxious and you go, God, I have so much work to do and I have things I need to take care of, but I need to call on your name and I need you to help me because I'm overwhelmed and I'm stressed right now. In that moment of prayer, you are humbling yourself. And when you humble yourself, the God of the universe shows you favor. It's not 99 times out of 100. It's 100 out of 100. It's the law of humility. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Uh, Let me imagine someone here um, is stuck in an addiction. And so there's this thing that's ravaging your life and you love Jesus and you show up at church and yet in the quietness of your room, in the quietness of the weekend, somewhere along the way, there's this addiction that got its claws in you. And some of you have gone with the strategy, I'll tell no one about my addiction, I'll hide it, I'll conceal it, I'll keep it to myself, I won't ask for help because if I ask for help, I'll look like a weak Christian. And here's what the scriptures say, you have every reason to believe that the God of the universe opposes you. But to the Christian in this room who says, I will confess my sin, I will not conceal it. I will share it. I will ask for help. I will just raw, be raw and honest and share about what's going on in my life and confess the most gross, disgusting parts of myself. In the moment you humble yourself and confess, the God of the universe shows you favor. We could go on and on and on and on in a moment where something happens, where, where you need, someone needs help or there's an opportunity for you to serve, to clean up a mess or to set up chairs or to do anything like that in your life. In that moment where you go, nah, that's not me. I don't really want to help with that. The God of the universe opposes you because he opposes the proud. But in the moment you help in a silly, small, seemingly insignificant way, God sees that, he notices it, and he shows favor on your life. Here's my question. Do you want God's favor on your life? Do you want his favor to be poured out upon your spirit and your life and your future? The scriptures give this immutable law that God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. It goes on this way, verse six. It says, humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he might lift you up in due time. Oh, like once again, you kind of want to ask the question, like, do you want God to raise you up? Do you want God's hand to pick you up out of the murk and the mire that you're in right now and set your feet on solid ground? Do you want God to raise up your life to ways you could have never imagined when you were a kid? Do you want God to do incredible and amazing things through your life? Do you want him to raise you up? What do you have to do then? You humble yourself, therefore under God's mighty hand. And once again, here's what I love about the New Testament. The New Testament here over and over and over is not saying be humble. That's how we think it is. We think it's be humble, but that's not what we're told here. There's a command, and it's not to be humble. It is to humble yourself. Here's the distinction I want to make, that humbling is not an emotion. It's not something you feel. It's not about you just not being too into yourself and you making sure not to brag and you making sure you don't feel too good about yourself. Humbling yourself is not an emotion. Humbling yourself is a decision. It is a decision you make. It is an action you do. What is humbling yourself? It is going to a fellow Christian and saying, I am addicted to pornography and I need your help because I'm stuck. What is humbling yourself? It is you going to your boss or your colleague at work and saying, I'm overwhelmed and I need you to help me. I need you to train me. I need you to assist me. What is humbling yourself? Humbling yourself is going to your parents and saying, I haven't done it all right. and My life is a mess and I need you to help me clean it up a little bit. What is humbling yourself? Humbling yourself is joining a small group when you would prefer to just do things on your own because you think you've got this and you don't need anyone else, but you join that group and you humble yourself. 
Humbling yourself is repentance. Humbling yourself is seeking the Lord. Humbling yourself is doing anything it takes to recognize your weakness, your smallness, your vulnerability, and your dependency on God. To humble yourself is not an emotion you feel inside of you. It is a decision you make. It is an action you take. And every time, you will know you are humbling yourself. Here's the, the trick. You know you're humbling yourself when you feel small, weak, helpless, and dependent. Well, let me list those again, just because it'll bother some of you. When you feel small, weak, helpless, and dependent. Now, here's what I know. There are a lot of you who are like me, and you never want to feel small, weak, helpless, and dependent. In fact, some of you have spent your entire adult life making sure that no one ever thinks you are small, weak, dependent, and helpless. But I have bad news and good news for you tonight, and it is that you are, in fact, small, weak, <laughs> dependent, and helpless. And here's what further you need to know, that if weakness is below you, then discipleship is beyond you. Like, like you've got nothing to follow Jesus until that moment you recognize that I am in need of God and in need of his spirit. If your basic attitude toward God is, thank you very much, God, I'll let you know if I need you, but I got it on my own, you are not a follower of Jesus. Following Jesus begins with, I am weak, I am helpless, I am a sinner, I am in my flesh, I need the spirit to fill me, I need God to help me, and when I humble myself, I recognize that. Verse 7 goes on this way. It says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now there's another like awesome memory verse, right? Like cost all your anxiety, not just like some of it, not just parts of it, but all your anxiety, which means like your legitimate anxiety about like, will I be able to pay rent and eat? And is this disease gonna kill me? And is my family gonna break apart? But it doesn't just say the major anxieties of your life. Isn't it cool that God says, I wanna take all of it? Isn't it cool that God says, I want your anxiety on whether or not your Wi-Fi will be strong enough when you drive up this road? Isn't it cool that God wants the tiny little anxiety of that time you made an awkward comment at work and you're wondering if maybe they're thinking weird things about you? Like, God wants it all. I love that about my God. He doesn't say, cast some of your anxiety on He says, I'll have it all. The big stuff, the little stuff, the major stuff, the petty stuff, bring it all to me. But, but here's a question I want to ask you to just reflect on a little bit here tonight. We've been talking about humbling yourself, Right? humility and pride and humbling yourself before the sight of God. So why is it that Peter seems to like suddenly turn into anxiety? He's like, humility, pride, humble yourself, face of God, proud, all this kind of stuff, suddenly anxiety. And, and here's why I think this is, and this is so significant for those of you who wrestle with anxiety, just on a weekly or daily basis, for those of you who just feel like you're constantly anxious in this world, I want you to actually understand that this is not some random sentence Peter threw in. Peter's not like, what could I say at the end of the letter? He's like, pride, humility, anxiety. He's not just throwing, he's weaving together an argument. And here's what I want you to see, that pride creates anxiety. Pride creates anxiety. When you walk in arrogance, when you walk in pride, it creates, it generates, it festers anxiety inside of your life. Let me give you three examples. It is arrogant to assume that you know the future. Do you know that almost all of your anxiety is you predicting the future and it's always gonna be bad? And so what you sit there is you sit there and you're like, well, this happened and therefore that's going to happen and this is going to happen and you know everything that's going to happen in the future. But do you know that is arrogance? That is just arrogance and pride for you to think that you know the future. You know exactly how things are going to go. Let me give you another one. It's arrogant to assume you know the thoughts of others. Do you know how much of your anxiety is actually rooted in the idea that someone else is thinking bad things about you? Do you know how many times you've left a conversation and you were kind of awkward because we're all humans and we're awkward and you walk away, you're like, I'm sure they're just thinking about me and how terrible I am and how awful I am and how miserable I am. And you just think that, but you know, it's actually pride to think you know what's going on inside of their brain. 
Do you know how often you're wrong about that? You ever had a conversation with someone later and you're like, I thought you were so mad at me. And they're like, I wasn't mad at you at all. I was just sitting here wondering what time Chick-fil-A closes tonight and if I'll be able to make it after the service. And I got stressed out like that wasn't about you at all. How many times have you been wrong about what people actually believe in their mind? See, this is what pride does. Pride assumes it knows the future. Pride assumes it knows what's going on in someone else's line. And then here's the most important. It is arrogant to assume that God isn't at work at the situation. Well, like some of you have lived your entire life just anxious about things, assuming God has abandoned your situation. And that is arrogance. It is pride. Do you see how pride just stirs up anxiety in our life? When I walk in this arrogance and hubris and pride, I actually believe I know what's going on in your mind. I know the future. I know what God's doing. I know what he's not doing. But let me give you the opposite. Humbling yourself creates peace. When you humble yourself before your God, it creates peace in your life. Peace that transcends all understanding. I'll say it three ways. Number one, only God knows the future. So isn't it great that your little vision of the future where everything ends in disaster and you end up homeless and dead on the side of the road because one thing didn't go right? Actually, only God knows the future. So you don't have to play this worst case scenario game where you map out every possible conceivable idea that could possibly happen. You just go, you know what? God knows the future. And God today has enough worries of its own. Number two, only God knows the thoughts of others. Like one of the most freeing things in the world for you to do is to stop playing mind reader with the people around you. Is to actually just like live your life in such a way where you're not like assuming that people are constantly thinking about you because let me just liberate you tonight. No one is thinking about you. They are constantly thinking about who? Themselves. Oh, it is so freeing to realize that people are not actually talking about you. They're not actually thinking about you. They are spending their entire life obsessed with their favorite subject, which is themselves. It is so freeing to just say, I don't know what's on their mind. I don't know what's going on. And if there's something important, they'll tell me. And then finally, only God knows his ultimate plan for my life. And so again, how do I find peace? I find peace by going, God knows. I don't know. Yeah, today was tough. There were some tough things I had to do, some tough conversations I had to have. Things didn't necessarily go right. Things aren't going great in my life. But you know what? God knows exactly what he's doing, even if I don't. Humbling yourself creates peace. It goes on this way in verse 8. It says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. I won't teach long for this on this, but I just wanted to let you know um, that this kind of assumption all of us make about like the world is just the only thing. The only thing in the world is what we can see. And so we don't really believe in the devil and we don't really think about demons because we can't see them. That is arrogance. And it is an arrogance that will destroy you. If you don't think there is a Satan who hates you, you are arrogant and you are ultimately foolish and that same Satan will take you down. What is humility? Humility is recognizing that there are spiritual forces and powers in this world that are looking to destroy you. And if you humble yourself before your God, you are quite safe. Verse 10 says, In the grace of God, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To him be power forever and ever. Amen. So, so again, this entire chapter that is built around submitting yourself, humbling yourself, looking weak and vulnerable and dependent and needy, this whole entire chapter is actually going to culminate in him saying, you're going to be strong. You're going to be firm. You're going to be steadfast. And, and isn't it fascinating this connection between you humbling yourself and God saying you will have strength like you could not possibly imagine in your life. And here's why. Because humbling yourself feels like a loss. When you ask for help, when you show yourself to be needy, when you confess your sin, when you actually have to cry out to God, it feels like a loss. 
because it feels like you're not good enough. It feels like you don't have the power. It feels like you don't have the strength. Humbling yourself in the moment always feels like a loss. And yet I want you to know that humbling yourself results in a win. And the great win is that when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will raise you up. It is that God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. See, the entire basis of the Christian life is based on the idea that humbling yourself looks like a loss, but it is actually your greatest victory, your greatest win. And why do I know that? Because if you are in this room and you are a Christian, you have been born of the Spirit of God, it only happened because you humbled yourself. How do we humble ourselves before God? The entire Christian gospel is this, that we sinned, we turned away from God, we said, forget you, God, I'm going my own direction, doing my own thing, and yet God rescues us by sending Jesus to die on the cross and rise from the dead so that when I repent and humble myself and say, God, I have sinned against heaven and against you, I'm not worthy to be called your son, make me but one of your hired servants. In that moment that we humble ourselves, the hand of God lifts us up. That's how you are saved. You were saved because you humbled yourself. And how do you continue to experience the power of God and salvation? You continue to humble yourself. And the message to anyone here tonight who has not turned from God, who is still running away from God, the great, beautiful message of the gospel is that the moment you plant your foot in the ground and turn and come back to God and you repent of your sin and you return to God, he says that because of your humility, he will raise you up. You will be saved. You'll be made right with God. That's my invitation for you tonight. If you're in this room and you're not sure who God is, you're not sure that you can be saved, I want you to know that humbling yourself before God seems like a loss, but it is actually your greatest victory. Verse 12, here's how the book of 1 Peter ends. It says, With the help of Silas, who I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. So, so he's saying Silas, this, this friend of his, was helping in this ministry. And it says, stand, stand fast in it. And then verse 13 says this curious phrase that we'll get to in a second. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, as does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to all of you who are in Christ. Now, there's this interesting phrase here where it says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. Now, this is a really fascinating idea because the the church that Peter is writing to here is not in Babylon, but rather it's in the empire of Rome. This is what you need to know about the entire New Testament. The entire New Testament is written to the church in the empire of Rome. And if you've done any of your basic like ancient civilization, Rome was this epic empire that just covered most of the known earth. They were the dominant economic and military and social and political force in the entire world. And here's what happens. The church of Jesus Christ, Jesus raises from the dead. He launches the church into the world. It's this tiny little group of believers in the midst of this massive empire. Like it says at the beginning, there's about 120 believers. That's like a little bit smaller than this room right now. And like that's all of the Christians in the Roman Empire. And so what happened is you have the Roman Empire and you have this tiny little group of Christians. And really early on, they realized that the Roman Empire was trying to crush them. But rather than saying the Roman Empire is the problem, they had to make up a code word for the Roman Empire. And you know what they came up with? Babylon. Why? Because in the Bible, Babylon is the greatest, most wicked enemy of the people of God. And so instead of calling it Rome, they called it Babylon. And here's what's wild about this text. It says, she who is in Babylon, she is the church. The church is always referred to as a she in scriptures. She who is in Babylon, in other words, she who is in Rome, this tiny little church in the midst of this massive Roman empire, 
That's the church that is speaking out right now. What does it say here? She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is this tiny little church of Christians, just a couple hundred, sometimes a couple thousand Christians after Pentecost in this massive Roman empire. And yet here's a historical fact of the world that you don't even have to be a Christian to believe because it's true. The church outlasts the Roman empire and reshapes the entire world. This tiny little ragtag group of Jesus followers outlasts the mighty Roman Empire. The Roman Empire crumbles, and the church is now alive and thriving on every continent in this world. And here's the question I want to end with as our band makes their way up tonight. So we're going to sing as we close. The question I want to end with is this quick, simple question. How did this happen? How did this tiny little church of Jesus, this tiny little group of believers outlast the Roman Empire? How did they go on to reshape the world so that even when we say it is 2023 today, we are referencing the birth of Jesus Christ? How did this tiny little group of Jesus followers outlast and ultimately overturn the Roman Empire? And the answer, it turns out, is the simple law of humility that we have seen all night, and it's simply this, that we would humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, that he might lift you up in due time. What did those Christians do when everyone in the world was against them, when the entire empire was against them, when the government was against them, when the military was against them, when the economy was against them, everyone was against them? Did they whine? Did they complain? Did they just sit around and gripe about it? No. They humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God. And God saw their humility. He saw them humbling themselves. And he raised them up to more than they could possibly imagine. You are sitting in this room today because thousands of years ago, Christians humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God. And God raised the church up. And here's the question for your generation and mine. Will we be the same type of people who humble ourselves before our God? Will we be the same type of people who humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that God might raise us up for such a time as this? This is the invitation. Do you want God's blessing on your life? Do you want God's favor on your life? Do you want him to raise you up with his mighty right hand? That is available for you tonight only if you humble yourself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight and thank you for your word and thank you for the invitation to humble ourselves before you. I pray for a young man in this room who needs to do exactly that tonight. I pray that you would give him the wisdom and the faith to humble himself before you, to confess his sin, to reach out for help, that he might do that in this space before he leaves tonight. Pray for a young woman in the room tonight who just needs to cry out to you, God, to trust you with her anxiety, to trust you with her life, to trust you with her faith. God, I pray that you would allow her to humble herself tonight. And God, for everyone who does so, may we receive the promise that we would be raised up in due time so God, help us to know that you oppose the proud, but you show favor to the humble. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said.